Overdrive. Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program about the facts, the fun and the fiction of motoring and transport. I'm David Brown. And in this program, we have news stories, including Holden announces exclusive SUV and ute lineups and smart headphones to warn pedestrians of road dangers being developed. Last week, we spoke of the top of the range Nissan Navara Entrek Warrior dual cab ute. We covered the specifications. Now this week, Rob Fraser takes it down the blue rag track in Victoria. I play part of an interview I did for a radio documentary on disability and transport. And in quirky news, Brian Smith and I discuss how car companies helped the Apollo space mission. You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. Or you can go to our Facebook site, Overdrive City. So let's start the program with the news. A new airbag safety risk has been flagged by the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, affecting around 78,000 older vehicles manufactured between 1996 and 2000. The car makes affected in the warning include Audi, BMW, Ford, Honda, Mazda, Mitsubishi, Suzuki and Toyota. Audi and BMW have already begun a voluntary recall. The vehicles were fitted with a Takata airbag with a certain inflator, the NADI-5AT, and the ACCC warned it could misdeploy in an accident. Metal fragments could fly from the airbag after it inflates, causing serious injury. Authorities have already received reports of three incidents, including a fatality, suspected of involving these airbags not deploying correctly. It should be noted that these Takata airbags were not part of the existing recall that was announced some time ago. Some commentators have suggested that some of the older cars affected by the latest recall may be written off as the cost to replace the airbag may be more than the current value of the vehicle. Fiat Chrysler and PSA Peugeot have announced that they intend to merge, creating the world's fourth largest automaker. The merger will create a company worth about $50 billion and unite brands such as Fiat, Jeep, Dodge, Ram and Maserati with the likes of Peugeot, Opel and DS. The new entity, whose name has not yet been announced, will have the scale to confront the challenges of stricter emission regulations and the transition to new driving technologies. The executive said that they expect the deal to take 12 to 15 months to close. It will create a company with revenues of nearly 170 billion euros and produce 8.7 million cars a year, just behind Volkswagen, the Renault-Nissan Alliance and Toyota. Holden has announced that it is removing the Commodore and Astra brands from its model lineup and from 2020 will focus exclusively on SUVs and light commercial vehicles. Holden's Commodore was first introduced to the Australian market 41 years ago in 1978, where it replaced the long serving family sedan, the Holden Kingswood. Built in Australia from 1978 to 2017, the Commodore was the country's best-selling car well into the late 1990s. The Commodore, which also came as a station wagon and ute variants, 
was loved across the nation for its Australian tuned suspension, large interior room and accessibility of parts. Most enthusiasts agree the nameplate effectively died when Australian manufacturing ceased production of the VF Commodore in October 2017. Holden then imported a German-built Opel and rebranded it as the ZB Commodore and Calais, but sales have been poor. Some commentators have questioned why Holden didn't retire the Commodore badge in 2017 when local production ceased and market the Opal under the Insignia badge, which Vauxhall used in the UK and Opal used in Germany. Only 8,700 units of the ZB Commodore have been sold in 2019, compared to nearly 100,000 Commodores sold in the 1998 calendar year. Sales deliveries of Commodores and Astras will continue through 2020 as part of an orderly run-out. Last month, we reported that Holden sold just 2,600 vehicles during November. That's reportedly Holden's weakest monthly result since the company was established 71 years ago. New mobile phone detection cameras have caught more than 3,300 people illegally using their phones while driving in one week across New South Wales. The cameras were rolled out on December the 1st, with more than 773,000 vehicles scanned for drivers using their phones at six locations. And while the cameras are only designed to detect mobile phones, Transport Minister Andrew Constance refused to rule out broadening their scope to target other forms of distracted driving. Unlike speed cameras in New South Wales, the six fixed and two mobile trailer-mounted cameras aren't signposted. The government passed legislation back in 2012 that made it illegal for drivers to touch their smartphone unless it was mounted in a cradle. Anyone looking to buy a new Hyundai or Kia car may have their delivery delayed by up to two months after four cargo ships were quarantined or turned around to treat the latest outbreak of stink bugs and other foreign pests. Approximately 4,000 Hyundai cars and 6,000 Kia vehicles are caught up in the first detection of stink bugs for the 2019-2020 season. Other car brands on the same ship are likely to be affected, but are yet to come forward. Brown marmorated stink bugs have interrupted shipments of new cars for the past five years, but the number of detections by the Department of Agriculture has increased annually. Peak season for stink bug infections is the lead-up to the Northern Hemisphere winter, when insects hibernate. But they come out of hibernation as the ships and the cars they are hiding in, head south through warmer tropical climates. Over the past few years, stink bugs have caused lengthy delays of cars due to arrive in Australia between November and March. Given the increased biosecurity threat, authorities are monitoring more vessels before they enter Australian waters. One of the four ships carrying Hyundai and Kia cars was refused entry into Australian waters and directed to be fumigated at a foreign port. Three other ships are being treated and held in quarantine as a precautionary measure. On the subject of Kia, the Korean car maker has applied for a new logo design in an application filed with the Korean Trademark Office. The new logo appears to be planned in both red and black versions, possibly so that the red one can go on performance models. 
The new stylish logo could replace the current design, which debuted back in the mid-1990s. To help combat the danger of people near traffic wearing headphones or earbuds, oblivious to their surroundings, researchers at the Data Science Institute at Columbia University are designing an intelligent headphone system that warns pedestrians of imminent danger. Known as talking, as headphone-wearing pedestrians often cannot hear the auditory cues that signal imminent harm, such as horns, shouts or the sound of approaching cars. As a result, the number of injuries and deaths caused by talking in the USA has tripled in the last seven years. To counter this growing public safety concern, researchers at Colombo University are developing a smart headphone system that can warn of approaching vehicles and other dangers, helping to reduce pedestrian injuries and fatalities. The research and development of the smart headphones is complex, and it involves embedding multiple miniature microphones in the headset, as well as developing a low-power data pipeline to process all the sounds near the pedestrian. The system's intelligent signal processing must detect and isolate the sounds of approaching vehicles, then send a clearly heard audio alert to the pedestrian's headphones. And that has been the news. Uh, we have talked at length at how utilities are selling and selling very well in Australia, but can you take them into the rough and tumble? And can you tour in areas that perhaps the average person might not go? Rob, you've been in the new Nissan. It's the Navara Entrek Warrior, top of the range for the Navara range. It's certainly got a testosterone name to it, hasn't it? It has, and, and it lives up to it. Really? Where'd you take it? We, we actually went down to Victorian high country and we did a f- number of tracks around there. I think one that a lot of listeners would be familiar with is the Blue Rag track, which goes up to a trig point in the Victorian high country. I personally have never been there before. I was really looking forward to it and it didn't disappoint. It was an awesome drive. How far was it? What sort of t- distance did you cover? It's about 320, 330Ks northeast of Melbourne. Right. And the track itself, I think, is about 125Ks and it ranges from you know, normal sort of gravelly, you know, forest roads through to some quite steep shaley type ascents. And the last, mm, I guess, you know, sort of 100 metres or less up to the actual trig point is quite a steep gra- um, gravelly shaley type ascent. So a lot of people park and walk up. Oh, really? Yeah. And the other thing you're doing too, and there's a few tracks down there like that, is you're actually driving along the ridgeline. Yes. And there's nothing on the side of you. So there are places there where you're actually, it's just literally the two wheel tracks. And on either side of you are drop-offs hundreds and over a thousand feet. So it's not for the faint-hearted. It's not you know, over dangerous, I presume. But as I say, not for those who might be a little queasy or very inexperienced. You know, you need to know what you're doing and you need to have a vehicle that's, that you're comfortable with to be able to do it. And, and the Warrior actually just, it just did it so easily. It's a point there that it's not just handling the rough stuff, but it's actually quite comfortable to drive. The thing that really, there's a couple of things that struck me. They've redesigned the suspension with different dampers and they've got a progressive or two-stage damper rate and they've also got a progressive bump stop. So what that means is when you're actually going over those bumps in a typical sort of four-wheel drive or ute, you'll go to one side and you'll go to the other side and you'll pitch backwards and forwards and you'll be bouncing everywhere. In this ute, what that, it reduced that dramatically by uh, probably 60 or 
So it actually had a much smoother ride, which allowed you a lot more control over the vehicle as you were going. It also meant for those steeper ascents and those difficult areas, you didn't have to have you didn't have to hit it as hard. You could actually drive in a smoother, more controlled manner going up, which again protects the track and also protects the vehicle and the occupants. You don't have to build up hectic momentum. Is that what you're saying? Uh, look, absolutely. I mean, it's also got a rear diff lock. There was a couple of spots there where it was a very loose dirt, gravelly, sort of really steep incline with massive holes on either side that really test out the articulation. Now, in a normal four-wheel drive ute, I know from experience that you would have to actually, well, a lot actually wouldn't make it. They simply wouldn't be able to get up there. If they did, you'd be hitting it really hard to get the momentum to basically bounce yourself up the track. It has uh, raised suspension, so it's got a bit of clearance. It's got a bit of clearance, and it's got some really good Cooper AT3 all-terrain tyres, which, you know, so they, they really provide a lot of the traction. It's, in fact, tyres are the best thing you can put on a vehicle if you want to go off-road. That's the very first thing you should do is change the tyres. So that gave a lot of grip, and we actually just, with a little bit of pushing, we just drove up fairly simply. Rear diff lock, extra suspension, wheel articulation, and we just climbed up easily. Now, Nissan is actually selling this more complete rather than you having to tack on those extra things. It's, it's a completely integrated redesign of all the things that people would go into a four-wheel drive aftermarket shop and put on. Gives you confidence also means that it integrates things like the bull bar into the, the vehicle, which is very important in terms of even things like triggering your airbags and so on and and also of course protecting pedestrians if there is unfortunately a crash i like that integration now with cars that are so complex and have such safety features to tack on bits can upset balances more than we might appreciate oh absolutely and i actually it, it's so well integrated after they told us because it didn't really look too close to that before the presentation the first thing I did when I walked out, I actually went and tapped on the bar, thinking, yep, it is steel. It is a, because it looks just perfectly normal. What do you got around there? Can I camp or what's the sort of accommodation? What, is it the sort of bit more than a day trip? There's, there's a number of tracks um, down there. And, and the two best ones are the Blue Rag track and the Billy Goat Bluff track. And when they, when they say Billy Goat Bluff, they mean this thing's for Billy Goats. Like there, it is... When I mentioned earlier you're sitting on the pinnacle of a ridge, the Billy Goat Bluff is absolutely like that. It is just a, a, a ridge and then drops straight off. So you're right up in the high country. You're as high as you can possibly go down there. And, you know, the vista is just fantastic. But then you can drop right down into some of the valleys. We camped at a place called – it was a nice little campground with a, a, a drop pit toilet, no shower facilities. But it was surprising enough called Dog Grave Camping Area. And there was a grave there for a dog, so – um, there was no ghost or spirits of the dog at night time, thank goodness. But it was a beautiful spot. I just love these names. I remember being out there one time. We stopped and the guy said, this is a drop toilet and it's probably one of the be best ones in Australia, of which my comment to him was, well, that's an interesting thing to be a connoisseur in. <laughs> yeah. What makes a good one is, is amazing anyway. Okay, blue rag track taking the Nissan Navara X-Trek, no, N-Trek, N-Trek Warrior, I'll get it right, uh, out there, Rob. Sounds like a great trip. Thanks very much. Thank you, David. This is Overdrive across Australia.
I was recently commissioned to do a radio documentary for the National Features and Documentary Series. The subject was Disability and Transport. I had originally thought of presenting a number of technical things that are being done to help, but it became more of a piece about the broad impact that a disability has and the catastrophic changes it makes to people's lives, especially if transport is difficult. This is part of my interview with Ben Felton. When he was 15 years old, Ben Felton received a diagnosis that said he would go blind. It didn't happen immediately, but that didn't diminish the impact. So all my hopes and dreams were pretty much dashed at that point, David, but I continued to ride and drive and do things so-called normally until I was 24 and 9 months, and that's when I tore up my motorcycle licence. And of course, that uh, had a huge impact on my life because um, I had to give up riding and driving and and I was working at the time, I was doing a lot of driving in the industry, I worked in small goods, so I lost my job. And then my relationship and my whole life pretty much spiralled into chaos for quite a few years. And not having your mobility, you know, I grew up in the Blue Mountains, David, so public transport, you know, we have a train once an hour. So when you lose your mobility, you also lose your independence. Once you lose your independence, you know, and up here, a lot of the work that I used to do, you know, you had to drive, you have to drive. Um, you have to, I get to do all your employment, or you needed it for your employment. When it's raining, winter time, you know, walking for half an hour to get to the local railway station, it just becomes too onerous. Life becomes difficult, or it becomes very expensive. People were very understanding. Family members particularly would like to try and talk about it, but oh, for me it was just too raw and I just didn't want to go there, so I sort of was in denial. But what I did notice was as my sight did start to deteriorate, I didn't get invited to go and play footy with the boys or cricket. My social aspects, and this was not really a conscious thing, I don't think, just that prior to me being 25, you know, I was a very good sportsman. I was in all the, you know, the top football teams and soccer teams and cricket sides and a lot of my social network and friendships were around community sport. I was very good at it, so I got invited all the time. But as my eyesight started to deteriorate, I wasn't getting invited. And so that big part of my social thing became more and more difficult, of course. And then when you don't drive as well, so I can't just turn up, you know, at Katoomba or Penrith or whatever to play in a particular match. It just all became too difficult. So then you become more and more isolated. Yeah, and you become virtually a recluse. For a while there, I was scared to go out at night time or even during the day because, oh, what happens if my eyesight finally does go and I get stuck? And so I just I just became more of a recluse and, and withdrew. And we should not just think of the well-known disabilities. In the UK, a survey has shown some 3.5 million older people don't walk to locations because of rough footpaths and a fear of traffic. The benefits are not just in helping people with a difficult task. The enjoyment, the interaction with people, even the thrill of travel and movement is an experience that we can all appreciate. Ben Felton knows this particularly well. Now, you have a world record, don't you? Yeah, I do. Yeah. What's that? <laughs> the world record for the fastest speed for a motorcycle ridden blindfolded at 272 kilometres an hour. Uh, we did that in March of 2018 on a salt lake in Outback, South Australia. And you were supported by your mate Magoo. 
Kevin McGee, yes, Mr. McGee was my navigator who rides another motorcycle behind me and we use radio communication. Precision, perfection is the key with us. So when you're travelling at 250 kilometres an hour, you're moving at 70 metres per second. So when Kevin gives a navigational command, then I have to respond instantaneously and I have to get it right every time. I'm not game enough to ask you what happens when you get it wrong, but I also find a wonderful irony in the fact that the person that guides you has a nickname of Magoo. Yeah, <laughs> I know, the bumbling guy with the really thick glasses. I will play the whole documentary as one of the overdrive programs in the holiday period. And you can find a link if you search for the National Features and Documentary Series. You're listening to Overdrive. And now back again, let's talk to Brian Smith. Brian, are there things about the old cars that you thought might have been part of a package in putting together the Apollo space programs? Good question, David. I mean, I've, I've seen a couple of uh, capsules. Uh, Russian ones look more like the inside of a steam train, uh, <laughs> and the Apollo ones are kind of kind of got a sort of sixties feel about them. But uh, I've, I think um, I believe that you can have in your mobile phone or even a pocket calculator more computing power than some of the Apollo um, spaceships. But tell me more, David. How are tubes and things being used? Someone said the old Russian spaceships, if you looked inside, looked like a 1950s laundromat. <laughs> yes, because the Russians are classics at this sort of stuff, not, not inventing stuff if it doesn't need to be done. The Americans spent a fortune trying to design and designing a, uh, a pen that would write in zero <laughs> gravity. Of course, the Russians just said, well, will you, we'll use a pencil. <laughs> I'm afraid that's a myth, Brian, because oh, a, pen no. a pencil's no good because you've got to sharpen it, and that means and if the little lead breaks off, then you've got it uh, floating around in space, <laughs> <laughs> and it's actually quite, uh, quite poor. But uh, the interesting thing is that the car companies actually made a large contribution. The Ford Motor Company's electronic division designed and built Mission Control. And Chrysler Aerospace built the Redstone rocket that launched Alan Shepard's Mercury capsule before Apollo and made the first American to reach space. Here I was thinking that they were all driven by big weapons manufacturers for that uh, war jets, Lockheed and people like that. Ah, well, that's where you get Boeing has a bit of a, uh, perhaps a marketing intent to decrease General Motors' role in the Apollo project. Uh, because of the building of the lunar roving vehicle, LRV, which uh, the aerospace firm did indeed construct. However, it was the car maker and their engineers, uh, a Sam Romano and a Ferenik Pavlik, uh, who came up with the idea of this module ro rover vehicle in the first place, which was using, of course, an electric motor. Oh, yes, of course. 
internal combustion wouldn't, <laughs> it wouldn't work real well without oxygen. <laughs> they couldn't get it to work with their EV-1 here, but they managed to get it to work on the moon. Uh, now, of course, they didn't go up with uh, Armstrong on that. They uh, NASA explored the idea and banded it, but then it came back, I think, Apollo 15. But ultimately... It was the car maker AC Spark Plug Division who were responsible for the guiding Apollo 11 to the moon orbit and for providing navigation and fly-by-wire control for the lunar landing modules as it descended, well, for its descent onto the surface. Apparently, the Spark Plug Division started working on inertial guidance and navigation systems for the United States military in the late 1940s. They were the people that claimed that they could guide a Titan III intercontinental ballistic missile to a particular third-story window of the Kremlin, if you wanted to. (laughs) Mind you, we haven't got autonomous vehicles working quite yet, but nonetheless, they could guide a missile that would do that. What else could you use from cars? I mean, I wonder, did they have the old dipstick button on the floor or did they have it up on the console now to go to high beam? Oh, high beam, the high beam button on the floor. What I was concerned about is that at this point of time, the Japanese manufacturers were improving their cars over and above American and uh, British and indeed Australian manufacturers. And so going with General Motors was probably a mistake in terms of getting a really comfortable interior for, the, say, the, the moon buggies, the, uh, the, the lunar rovers, the, the capsules and stuff. They should have gone Japanese. They would have had much nicer sort of fit-out, 8-track player and, uh, you know... Reliable electronics. The lunar roving vehicle was originally proposed, but NASA rejected it originally because it was too big and heavy. So perfect American manufacturing. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) The the Japanese would have built it smaller, lighter, more reliable and uh, quicker. Yes. And cheaper. 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 (laughs) Well, I, I, I wondered whether the rockets had a choke. Ah, manual choke, but somewhere to to hang your helmet on. (laughs) Well, now, of course, the the tragedy of the, what was it, the Columbia that blew up and that was too cold. Oh, was it really? Yeah, the the O-rings or something. Was it one of those that... uh, Shattered. That shattered and what have you. I'm not sure a choke was made for overcoming cold starts, but perhaps not in that manner. Brian, as always, it's been great to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, David. And that's Brian Smith. And we were talking some quirky news here on Overdrive. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to the Overdrive team for their passionate support of this program, especially David Campbell, Brian Smith, Rob Fraser and Paul Just. Overdrive can be heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network. You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au and previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. And of course we have our Facebook page, Overdrive City. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.